0: This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by PicoBrew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make
1: great beer with PicoBrew. And by Kraftmeister and BTF IOTA4. When you absolutely, positively need to make sure every surface is clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister,
0: an innovative fermenter that's 100% made in the USA. No cleaning or sanitizing required. The Genesis fermenter from Brewcraft is all of that. Just place the sanitary inner liner in the Genesis, fill with your wort, and pitch your yeast. That's it. Not to mention you can't break it. It has built-in handles, and the opening is almost 6 inches wide. The Genesis Fermenter from Brewcraft USA is truly innovative and can be purchased anywhere
1: Brewcraft USA products are sold. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one stop hop shop where Nico and his guild take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the US and with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his guilt. And by the American
0: Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote the best hobby there is, homebrewing. Join us today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, money-saving AHA member deals, and access to exclusive events and competitions. And remember... Relax. Don't worry. Have a homebrew.
1: Y Yeast Laboratories has provided fresh, premium liquid yeast cultures worldwide since 1986. Choose from our product collection of ale, lager, German wheat, Belgian ale, wine, malolactic, or wild and sour strains for your next fermentation creation. We're here to help you ferment premium products like the professional, Y Yeast. And by you, our listeners. Go to
0: experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Hey everybody! Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Khan.
1: and I'm Drew Beecham. We're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and the forthcoming Homebrew All Stars. In fact, it's so forthcoming that by the time this podcast airs, you should be able to get this thing on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and anywhere else. Uh, you can you can actually
0: pre-order it right now, and you'll have it in your hands right about the first of May.
1: Woohoo! All right. So now between the two of us, we have nearly forty years of homebrewing experience, and about two years' worth of shilling books. But I'm the guy who's known for <laughs> weird beer and strange ideas.
0: And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with ways to check it out.
1: All right. And so on today's episode, we're going to head to the pub to discuss some election results, the upcoming homebrewers' convention, Denny's latest pet peeve of many.
0: Yeah, there's always one, isn't
1: there? Yeah, there always is, because you're old and cranky. That's right. And then finally, also an awesome, the customer is not always right, response from a brewery in Indianapolis. And then from the pub, we're going to head to the brewery where I'm going to talk about the joys of canning. And then it's off to the lab to discuss our next upcoming experiment. Uh, this one's all about uh, getting stale. And then Denny sits down with the always awesome Andy Johnson at the just-past Pacific Northwest Home Brewers Conference.
0: And finally, we're going to hit you up with another round of Ask Denny and Drew. Uh, this one has some kind of interesting info in it. And uh, we'll finally close out the show with our quick tip of the week. We want to remind you that you can support us on Patreon. You can do that by going to our website, www.experimentalbrew.com and clicking on the Patreon link and donate any amount of money that you feel like. Now, what do we do with that money? Well, of course, we fund this show and the experiments that we do. But to me, the coolest thing that we do with the money that you give us is that uh, we donated to a charity called Freedom Service Dogs who uh, rescues dogs and trains them into service animals for folks with disabilities, including military vets. It just doesn't get any cooler than that as far as I'm concerned. So uh, throw us a bone, and we'll throw a bone down to the poochies.
1: Yeah, just remember, even a buck a month, that adds up when we get enough people on Patreon helping us out. So, yeah. How about a buck a month?
0: Yeah, right on. So uh, I guess we had some feedback about our uh, first word hop experiment, uh, which kind of had interesting results, didn't it?
1: Yeah, from the last episode. So uh, I always love it. Every time we do anything about our experiments and we uh, drop the results, we get feedback about it. That's awesome. That actually shows that you are listening, which is nice. Uh, But one of our igors from the last experiment, Bob Givens, uh, contacted us. He was the man who had all the positive results out of the experiment. And he was absolutely convinced that he was going to be the outlier for this particular uh, experiment, but sorry, Bob, not this time. Uh, we also heard from a number of folks about the results and just how confusing they were and why why we couldn't get a clear answer and uh, just, <laughs> well, that's science, isn't it, man yeah I was gonna say I mean, trust us, we're confused too. and sometimes that's just where science leaves you. That's right, yeah <laughs> stupid um, science. I- I,
0: I can tell you that from my point of view, I'm, I'm going to continue looking into this because I have now gone through this experiment twice with kind of uh, inconclusive results. And maybe there are conclusive results to be gained. Maybe it has too much to do with the uh, tasting subjectivity, but I'm not giving
1: up yet. That's right. Never give up, never surrender. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, I mean, but again, I think this is definitely an experiment that we're going to revisit because there are a lot of questions about it and people let's face it, people are hop crazy and want to find new ways to shove hops into beer. And they'd like to know whether or not that's making a difference. So we know the science is confusing about this. The results were less than spectacularly clear. So we're getting back to it. Don't worry. Just give us yep. time. All right. And then, uh, also I heard a lot of, uh, from a lot of people about the weight loss segment that we recorded in the last episode, uh, all of it, thankfully, was very, very supportive, and I appreciate that. It was a little hard to uh, uh, to kind of, well, you know, open open up my soul that way and share with you. <laughs> uh, no,
0: but we all benefited from it, so thank you. Uh,
1: well, and, and truthfully, I was actually a little worried that it would come off uh, sort of uh, self indulgent, but uh, it did feel good to talk to uh, good to talk about it. So. Just remember, if I can lose the weight, if I can stop shoving so much food in my pie hole to actually lose weight and I can still have a beer or two, uh, so can you. It's hard work, but it's worth it. And really, what's hard work except for hard work? Now, at that same time, uh, we had a British listener, uh, Gary James, uh, who you'll be hearing from later in this episode as well because he gave us some really interesting stuff to chew on. Uh, He wrote in with a piece of uh, cross-promotion that I totally, totally forgot that I wanted to talk about when I was talking about weight loss, and that was session beer and weight loss. And to quote uh, Gary, he says, it struck me there was a link between this and your session beer topic, which I very much enjoyed, by the way. Just as Drew said, we need to make smart food choices, we can also make smart beer choices. A glass of tasty 4.5% beer is going to be less caloric than the same volume of 10.5% beer. It's as simple as that. And you know what? Gary's absolutely right, as the Brits usually are about session beer. Uh, ethanol quantity is probably the most important piece of beer calorie consumption. And it's the most important thing about the damn weight control. So there you go. Another reason to brew your session beers.
0: There, Yeah, really, man. Uh, less alcohol equals less calories equals less weight equals Denny should give it a try.
1: Yeah. Yeah. By the way, can I say, guys? I've been pre- uh, prepping a second round of uh, session beer recipes to share with everybody because hey, session beer, session beer day may be in the past, but it's always time for a good session beer. And yeah, so I asked Denny. Hey, Denny, you got another session beer recipe? And he's like, I don't think so. <laughs> but you, I found one. Didn't you I? did find one. But I mean, seriously, it's like I you gave me one, and then the second one had to be a, a, a spelunking edition. Come
0: on, buddy. Yeah, well, that's that's true, man. I just do not brew a lot of those, uh, and that is something I hope to change. Uh, like I said, I'm getting back to work on my American Mild, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, the goes to eleven zymatic will be playing a large part in developing that
1: recipe. There you go.
0: So, uh, I guess I guess we've kind of like uh, chatted about nothing for long enough. Maybe it's time to uh, head to the pub for a beer now. I think so. All right. We'll be right back from the experimental brewing pub with the beer life. Welcome back, everybody. Drew and I are sitting here at the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, USA, having a couple beers and talking about the beer life. Uh, What's your libation of choice today, Drew?
1: Uh, Well, keeping into the session beer category, because apparently I'm bored and obsessed, uh, I'm drinking a Timothy Taylor Bolt Maker, which was until recently their best bitter, but they uh, renamed it. Uh, Timothy Taylor is probably most famous for making landlord bitter, uh, which is right. That's what I yeah, know. Super famous, super awesome. And I just found in the local liquor store when I was putting together a talk for my homebrew club, uh, bottles of bolt maker. So I grabbed one or I grabbed a couple and I had one left over. So now I'm having it.
0: <laughs> Lucky guy. Uh, I'm, I'm going classic this time. I'm having a uh, West mall double. I guess I go classic about every time, but, uh, that's the kind of classic guy that I am. Uh, West Mall Double, I usually drink their triple, and I love it, and I realized that I was not given the double any love, so I picked one of those up, and wow, I'm a happy guy. So, um, topic of the day, I see, is the governing committee elections, huh?
1: Yeah, I figured uh, we talked about it before when you first announced your candidacy, and the results have been posted, and so I just really wanted to say uh, congratulations to Fred Bonjour for getting elected to the governing committee, and I think that's about all I have to say about that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah well, uh I'd like to congratulate Fred too, and uh I'd like to express my regrets at uh, having to spend another three years working
1: with drew well, uh, technically, you only have to spend one more, but yeah uh yeah, if you didn't if you didn't hear the announcement already, you idiots elected Denny to the governing committee again, which means I had to put up with him jerks,
0: yeah well. You know, uh, I, I don't know what the issue is. You have to put up with me. You know, maybe if I I just resigned right now, would that would that work better?
1: I th- I think that's against the bylaws. I think you first have to be on the governing committee before you can resign. So okay, you got okay. until June.
0: So this is uh, this is my fourth term, uh, the beginning of my tenth year on the governing committee, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I I really wanted to be on the governing committee to carry the concerns of homebrewers to the AHA, since I spend so much time uh, online in different forums and stuff. So if there's some issue that uh, you think uh, needs to be addressed by the AHA, shoot me an email and uh, we'll see if we can uh, get it discussed. You don't need to worry about uh, the homebrew con name because I'm already on top of that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, well, hey. So, speaking of homebrew con, yes. As much as I think, actually, the fact that the name irritates you just means I'm going to just start using it just out of spite. <laughs> so, you know, uh, homebrew con is happening in Baltimore, and homebrew con is a great time. Uh, registration is open for homebrew con right now. Uh, I think they're still open to all levels. Uh, homebrew con is the American Homebrewers Association Homebrewers Convention. Uh, and what where are Where you dates? and I, uh, June 9th through, what, June 11th? That sounds about June right. Is the imp- June 9th is the important date. That's when it starts. But it's a great uh, weekend-long party and seminars galore. If you're crazy and silly and you want to hear Denny and I t- uh, speaking live, you can actually catch us. We speak twice at the show. Uh, there is a giant vendor hall full of all sorts of gear and swag that you kind of want to... You know, get your grubby little hands on, including a chance to explore new ingredients. There's a big pro-brewers night where all the professional breweries in the area show up and pour beer and you get to have a sampling. There are parties that happen all around. There's club night, which is arguably the most fun thing that you could possibly do. You know, 40 to 50 homebrew clubs all in a giant room, all dressed up crazy with giant booths, pouring a metric ton of beer which is just a really awesome thing to see all the homebrew that's available and all the crazy ideas that people come up with. Uh, And then, of course, uh, we're going to be there. We're going to be having some fun. Uh, One of our sponsors is going to be having us do a live session uh, at their booth. So we will be recording a live Q&A show. Uh, right. so if you, if you're there at the show, you'll actually be able to find us and corner us and ask us a question and we'll put it on the show.
0: Yeah. Let me, and let me just give you a little bit of a rundown of our schedule in case you want to come by and talk to us or throw things at Drew. Um, we are going to be giving a seminar on Thursday afternoon at two and Saturday afternoon at two. On Thursday, right after our seminar at 3 o'clock, we're going to be heading over to the Craftmeister booth for a little bit of a meet-and-greet there for an hour or so. So come on by, say hi, check out the Craftmeister products. On Friday afternoon, at a yet-to-be-determined time, we will be recording a live Q&A podcast from the Brewcraft booth on the trade show floor So come on by, laugh at us, give us a question that we can't answer and make us look like the idiots that we probably are.
1: (laughs) That's not hard. (laughs) But no, uh, and hey, you know, the other thing is uh, there are little meets and meet and greets that are happening all the time. But, you know, if there's enough interest, uh, maybe we have a podcast meetup uh, at a local bar right nearby and uh, everybody can come have a pint with us. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Yeah, and if you're interested in that. Let us know.
0: Yeah, and and just uh, keep watching the website for info about it too. So okay, so now now I get to go into get off my lawn mode, right?
1: Uh, rant, uh, rant at the moon, go away, old man. Yeah,
0: well, and I have to admit that what really got me thinking about this latest pet peeve was something that uh, that Annie Johnson said. I guess I guess this is going to be me and Annie day here, Annie had said something to me and also posted on Facebook about the adjective used to be, to describe a lot of the new Northeast style IPAs that are coming out. And that word is juicy. I, uh, I posted on the AHA forum that I, you know, I, I kind of have an issue with that word, uh, being an ex-English major and being old and crotchety, I just feel like it's a really imprecise word that says nothing. You know, a, a raspberry is juicy. I'm trying to figure out how a beer can be juicy. I think I know what people are getting at by it, but to me, the issue is that language needs to actually communicate something, and saying a beer is juicy doesn't communicate anything to me. Now, and just to be honest, I'm the same guy who will describe a beer as flabby and expect that that does make sense. So um, I'm going to be receiving no points for consistency here, but I I I I really think that Juicy either needs to go away when you're talking about beer or that somehow it needs to be... Defined in a common way so that we all know what the hell a juicy beer is. Does that make any sense?
1: Yeah, but I think we really should have uh, titled this part of the episode, you know, "Old Man Rancid Moon," <laughs> <laughs> uh, because yeah. I, I mean, look, I, I'm I'm the guy who, whenever I teach judges for the BJCB class, uh, one of the things I I always uh, bang my uh, bang my head on or bang the desk on, I guess, is to use uh, words descriptively, you know, to, to generate descriptions. I think so much like the BJCP training, for instance, is all focused on find a flaw, find a flaw, find a flaw, instead of actually describing the beer. And so what I always tell people is use a language that in uh, evokes a sensation. And so if, for instance, you taste a beer and you taste a Hawaiian fruit punch in it, Say you taste wine fruit punch because that is actually an evocative image. Yeah, you know, it, it translates something better, I think, than saying, oh, this is fruity. My beef with juicy is that juicy is almost too generic. I am fine with people using it as a descriptor, but yeah, you know, give me more. Yeah, you know? it's like, yeah, you know, juicy like a ripe orange. Yeah, you because know, I mean, that's entirely what they're going for, right? You know, they're like, look, this is all, you know, like orange juice. I mean, what,
0: what about though, when people talk about a beer that has a juicy aroma? Because I have seen that more times than I like to think about.
1: I usually just forgive people and assume that they mean this. T- uh, this smells like fresh squeezed juice.
0: Okay. Uh, I mean it's well,
1: it's imperfect. It's imperfect use of language. Yes, I totally get it. But you know what? That's what happens with language. It gets imperfect and drifts.
0: Yeah, I, I know. And in the meantime, get off my lawn. <laughs>
1: yeah. Old man rancid moon unsuccessfully. <laughs>
0: okay. Uh, Last time uh, around, we talked about uh, pinkwashing that was going on. Today, we have kind of the opposite of that, and I just love this story. Uh, Run it down there, Drew.
1: Yeah, all right. So, Black Acre Brewing Company uh, owner Jordan Gleason uh, sort of went massively viral on Facebook uh, last week because he—or actually this week, sorry—he wrote a piece that was in defense of his employees because basically— He had a patron who came to the brewery, to the brewery tap room, and uh, demanded service a couple times. And he actually got kicked out because he was making uh, sexist comments to uh, the owner's employees. And despite the ban, the guy kept kind of coming back, coming back, coming back. And finally demanded that he be allowed to talk to Gleason, the owner. And uh, Jordan is not a, you know old crotchety owner guy, he is uh, younger than Denny and I by far and he basically the old uh, the old guy who was kicked out said yeah, oh, well you know you should forgive me, you should allow me to come in because I mean, hey look we're men and you know, you know how men are and blah 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 and, and these are just women and, uh, yeah, Gleason uh, Gleason said uh, let's see, what did he say uh, I sat with him for a few minutes as he explained that what he said uh, and he had said that uh he liked looking at their tits while they washed dishes and their asses while they were pouring drinks is what the old man had said. And so Jordan said, I sat with him for a few minutes as he explained that what he had said would have been okay 20 years ago. And that was just some off color remarks. He told me he apologized and they guessed my servers were too sensitive. He then told <laughs> me that. Yeah. He then told me that if what he had said was a problem, then I should tell them not to wear low cut shirts and that I should face the dishwashing uh, sink away from customers. But since he apologized, He should be allowed to drink in my establishment because he lives in the neighborhood and will bring in business. I told him flatly that wasn't happening and that what he said to those ladies was incredibly offensive. The simple fact that he couldn't understand that just because they were working didn't mean they deserved his disrespectful language. That these ladies were part of my family and were human beings that deserved respect, they aren't objects and they certainly shouldn't have to wear different clothes because he can't be bothered with showing them any decency or respect. But were men and their females as cleavage just not a thing anymore? Uh, the old man said. I told him, yeah, buddy, it's not. And I won't be changing my mind about having him served. He threatened bad publicity. I told him I didn't care. And he left. So, and it, and the rant goes on for a little while longer. And boy, did this blow up on Facebook. It had well over 17,000 shares in like a day.
0: Yeah. And I, I can't tell you how strongly I support what uh, Jordan said there. Uh, and I know that for a lot of guys, it's hard for them to understand that what they're thinking of as a compliment is incredibly offensive to the people that they think that they're complimenting. Um, And as Jordan kind of said, dude, things aren't like that anymore. Get over it and learn to get it together.
1: Uh, Yeah, go ahead. I mean, look, I mean, I'm... I'm the young hippie here, but I I will say, I just, it's like, look, seriously, just how many of the world's problems would go away if we all just decided to respect the fact that other people are human beings and have feelings and have hopes and dreams and desires and
0: don't be a shit. Yeah, well, and, you know, and the other thing is, uh, if those women were your daughter or your mother, would uh, would you want people saying that stuff to them? (laughs) I really, really doubt it, so... At any rate, it's it's really nice to see uh the the other side of uh some of what we feel is uh too much sexism in in the beer business and uh, see someone who realizes uh what's right is right and stands up for it. So uh yep. I think it's about time to head over to the brewery.
1: I do. I think it's time to get back to uh beer beer beer.
0: All righty. So uh We're going to finish our beers here. We're going to get our cans over to the brewery and talk about canning. Okay, we are sitting here in the brewery and we're going to be talking about uh, how Drew's Club, the Maltose Falcons, can some beer for uh, giving away to people.
1: Yeah, so uh, we have our big annual competition, our Mayfair competition, which is usually somewhere around you know, 500 to 700 entries based on the whatever craziness is of that year. And of course, one of the things that we always have trouble with is getting enough judges to be able to judge everything. So, you know, in the spirit of rewarding our uh, judges and people who come out to do work for us, we've started to do like little judge gifts, you know, like giving away a cup, uh, giving away shirts, et cetera, et cetera, just little tokens of our appreciation. And being beer people, one of the things we decided that we would try to do is start brewing some beers. So, for the past couple of years, we've brewed different beers to give away to the judges and stewards as a thank you gift. And this year, we decided, oddly enough, to do a Saison, and the club asked me to design it. Now, what we ended up choosing to do was what I call our Saison Fagola. Uh, Fagola is a Maltese uh, Easter cookie that is based around uh, almond paste, so marzipan, uh, blood orange, and lemon. And baked into a cookie and served, and yeah, you know, yay! Beautiful, uh, beautiful Easter treat. So, how do I do that in a beer? Uh, I ended up making a saison uh, very close to a traditional saison that I would that I would make for myself, but this time I upped the amount of toasty malts in there, so a little more uh, Munich, a little bit of uh, biscuit, and I think a little bit of Cara uh, Munich or Caravane, and just to get a little bit toasty, baked, good flavor in it. We then used uh, zest and juice of blood oranges, which we found here in Southern California, which are much closer to Italian oranges than the regular orange that we know, and a little bit of lemon zest. And then we put it into kegs and we hit it with a little bit of almond extract from one of my favorite places in the world, uh, Olive Nation, and use that to really sort of recreate this idea of, hey, we took a figola and made it into a beer. At the same time, we decided, okay, well, do we go and bottle this? How do, how do we get this going? And I stumbled across uh, in the L.A. area our local uh, mobile canner uh, company, company called Beer Monks. And let's stop and talk about that for a moment. Uh, if you've ever wondered why craft beer cans are suddenly such a thing, when it, particularly if you've ever looked at how much craft beer canning lines really cost, it's because in almost every area now you have – these outfits where they literally will roll up to a brewery with a truck roll equipment off the truck and take beer out of the brewery and put it into cans on these cute little lines i know denny you have one up in your area
0: yeah uh, crossroads canning is what we use up yep. here
1: and so and we we have beer monks down here in the la area and they've become really active over the last 2 years or so so now suddenly we're seeing a lot of local product in can and so just for amusement's sake, I contacted them and said, hey, would you guys be willing to give us a demonstration of how can- canning works at our club? And, hey, while I'm thinking about it, would you guys be willing to can some homebrew? So, they, they've they never done a canned homebrew before, uh, but they they were happy to come out, and they rolled up to our club uh, clubhouse during a club meeting, and we brought the Cezanne figola, and we demonstrated to everybody how the canning works. Now, the problem is, of course... Canning is an incredibly sensitive process. Uh, It requires sort of well-balanced beer and everything else. And it's usually working on about a seven-barrel capacity as opposed to, say, 30 gallons. And uh, so it proved to be a little difficult to use their machinery directly. But we did actually manage to do everything via filling cans with beer guns. uh, Filled them up with the beer guns and passed them through the seamer and weighed them out and made sure that we had appropriate sized beers and then labeled all the cans. So we now have canned homebrew available for our judges and stewards at our Mayfair competition uh, in two weeks. Very cool. Which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah. And, and And beer monks, uh, beer monks was beer, beer monks was kind enough to, to do this for us for free. Uh, But I know uh, other canners will work with homebrewers, uh, reach out to them. And I think your canner, uh will do canned homebrew, but they charge for it, right?
0: Yeah, they do, but it's a very reasonable charge. Uh basically what happens is that they pull up to a local brewery, you bring in a corny keg of beer, and you can get it canned in sixteen ounce cans and it's twenty five bucks for five gallons. And if you want labels on it, it's fifty bucks. Uh a little bit more automated than what Drew did and you don't have to fill the cans with uh, with a beer gun uh you know, uh, they just uh, hook the keg up and fill the cans for you, and you walk away with uh, all your beer and cans for what I consider a very reasonable price. So, again, well, if you're yeah. in the
1: – go ahead. Well, and I, and I talked with our guys, and they talked with your canners as well to take a look, and they they're using different systems. So yeah. I think that was part of the challenge. Plus, this was also uh, Beer Monks' first time ever trying to do anything with homebrew,
0: right? So sure. I mean, there's there's yeah. got to be a learning <laughs> process there. It's yeah. it's cool that Beer Monks talked to Crossroads, though. I mean, that's I love yep. to see that kind of information exchange going on because everybody benefits from
1: it. Well, and, and I think you're totally right. You know, twenty five dollars for a canned run of your homebrew. It I know uh, homebrewers are out there going, uh, that's a twenty five dollars. Shut up. Uh, particularly particularly once you, particularly once you see the amount of work that's actually necessary to go set one of these lines up and get everything running and get it all balanced and, and get everything working. Yeah. It's $25 is a hell of a bargain and it's just really stonkingly cool because at one point I walked outside, grabbed a can, walked back inside to the club meeting and cracked open the can as I was walking and started drinking my Saison straight from a can. <laughs> it was kind of nice, yeah, I right. Totally admit,
0: yeah, and and you know, and at the uh, the Pacific Northwest Conference a few weeks ago, a friend of mine was there with a, a barrel aged stout that he had had canned, and uh, that was a, a couple years old at least. And I started thinking, man, for beers you want to keep, what better way to do it could there possibly be than putting it into a can?
1: Well, And see now this makes me wonder like having seen uh, the Beer monks guys do this canning run with a beer gun and their seamer if there wouldn't be a way you know we're starting to see all these crawlers pop up in in breweries right so mm-hmm. you can go get a a can a can crawler so the real uh, the real magic after the filling is the the seamer yeah, you know I'm the kidding. thing that actually seals the lid onto the onto the top of the can and wouldn't it be cool if we could figure out a way to have just a homebrew level a homebrew level seamer that was reliable and relatively cheap, and actually have uh, kind of homebrew cans somewhat in reach, with the understanding that they're not going to be as good as the big commercial cans. But yeah. I went, I, I went and I looked for seamers online, and I think the cheapest one I could find on eBay was like four hundred dollars. Yeah, <sighs> and
0: and again, if it's not going to do a really excellent job, I question what the the real point of it is. But you know, whatever, different people have uh, different needs and wants, and. So you can go ahead and want your seamer, and I'll want something else.
1: There you go. So here's the takeaway. We've talked about uh, canning and the fun that we had and the fact that we're going to have some really cool, awesome cans. Denny's got aged beer in cans. But really, you should try and reach out to your local mobile canner and see if they wouldn't be willing to put on a can homebrew day. So kind of like how Denny's guys work, uh, you know, roll up to a common location, have homebrewers bring kegs of beer, fill them up, seam them up, and walk away with your beer, and I think that would be kind of cool, as a particularly as a fun sort of cross regional homebrew activity, you know, or even uh, just a club activity if you have enough people in your club who'd be willing to do it.
0: Yeah, so. it it is really fun. Our club does it frequently, and uh, we get a really good turnout every time they show up. So if you got a, go see if you've got a mobile canner in your area, and if you do, get your beer canned because you're gonna like it. Okie doke, I guess it's about time now to head over to the lab and talk about our next experiment. Oh, boy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, We'll be right back with that.
1: All right, boys and girls. You heard the Jacob Slider going you heard all the weird sciencey music, that means it's time to get down to science here in the lab at Casa Verde's Estates. Uh, and today, we're going to talk our next experiment that we're setting up. Uh, this one's going to have a little bit of a longer lead time to it, but we highly encourage everybody to get involved because this is an important uh, question. So we're calling this one Getting Stale, and here's the setup. We've all done it. You've gone to the local homebrew store. You're all excited about your next batch of beer, whatever it's going to be, you know, you're. Your fancy double IPA, your rye IPA, your wheat beer, your New England IPA full of haze, your, you know, whatever sort of other variant of IPA that you can think of. Because let's face it, you're a home brewer. It's probably an IPA. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But you go, you grind your grains there at the shop because you don't have a mill at home. Uh, You put them in a paper sack, roll up that paper sack, maybe uh, seal it up with some tape, go home, put the sack down in the brewery, and then life happens. Maybe work slams you with uh, too much work. Your boss is sitting on you going, oh, we need this done now. Emergency, emergency. Uh, Your kids fall ill. You fall ill. Your guts fall out. The world decides to throw a crappy buffet and you're the guest of honor. (laughs) Whatever it is, your brew brew intentions go by the wayside. Your brew day goes by the wayside. And it's a month later and there's that bag of crushed malt still sitting in the brewery, moldering away. Now, the conventional wisdom out there says, nope. Nope, 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 nope. Too late. Your grain now sucks. It's oxidized. It's wet. It's moist. It'll never make good beer. Junk it and go get some new grain. You've wasted your money, you lousy homebrewer. What are you doing? And basically, don't be so damn lazy next time. But here's a question. Is that actually the case? Well, we're challenging our Igors and you to see if that's true or not. So, Mr. Dincenzo, do you want to walk people through the parameters of the experiment? Sure, you betcha. Uh, and like Drew said, this is this is
0: predicated on the fact that uh, a lot of homebrewers don't have a mill at home with them. Uh, I, I co-own a mill with, my, with a friend who lives about 30 miles away. And so I have to depend on my schedule to get by his house and crush grain and uh, then brew with it soon after that. Uh, unfortunately that doesn't always happen and you probably have had this to you, happen to you too. Uh, you buy your grains, you get them crushed at the homebrew store, you come home and life happens. Uh, it could be just about anything, but, uh, you know, you're just not able to brew as soon as you'd like to. So can you use that malt a month, uh, two months, three months later? Uh, the belief that many homebrewers have is that malt, once it's crushed, is prone to rapid staling and lots of things cause that, but mainly, uh, oxidation and moisture absorption. But really the question is how long is too long? How long can you wait? At what point do you throw out the malt, throw up your hands and say, okay, I wasted my money. Let's move on and do something else. Um, I'll, I'll tell you my own story at, at, at the end. So, but, but this experiment was proposed by uh, our listener, Jason Click. And the question is, does cracked malt that's been left to sit for a month produce a noticeably different beer than freshly cracked malt? The hypothesis that we're working with is that there will be a qualitative, noticeable difference between the beer produced with the freshly cracked malt and aged cracked malt with the pre-cracked malt batch showing worse quality. Okay, so we're using the experimental wheat recipe to do this, um, which, uh, you know, I I don't think the fact that it's wheat malt rather than barley malt will skew the results. Uh, We'll just assume that's the case. So you need to uh, plan to brew two sessions, so plan ahead. You buy two batches worth of malt for the target recipe. You crush one batch a month ahead of the brew day. Crush the other batch on brew day. Brew these beers as close together as possible so you can uh, eliminate as many variables as possible. And be sure to note any difference between the two brews in terms of uh, gravity, clarity, color, efficiency, Part of the theory is that uh, the stale malt will produce a darker, less clear beer, and you might not get uh, conversion efficiency as high as you would otherwise. And also, note the weather that you were having during the storage time, the temperatures, uh, whether it was humid, raining, or snowing. And that's, that's pretty much it. Now, I, I, let me tell you, this happens to me more frequently than I care to think about. And I, I'm in that situation right now. I crushed a batch of malt about a uh, oh, about a week and a half ago uh, with the best of intentions to uh, brew the next day. And that malt is still sitting, waiting for me to use it. And hopefully I'll get to it next week. Uh, when I crush my malt, I put it into a paper bag, kind of fold up the top, tape it shut, so that's, that's how I store my malt. Uh, I, I don't know if that, uh, will leach moisture out of it and keep it dry or gain moisture and put it into the malt. Worst case example was, uh, a number of years ago, I had crushed the malt to brew a German Pilsner, a bunch of, uh, best pills malt. And I ended up with a fairly serious medical problem that, uh, kept me unable to brew for probably about six months. Uh, Realizing that I wasn't going to be able to brew, I stuck that uh, malt that that was in my paper bag inside of a uh, trash bag, taped it all up uh, securely, tossed it into the closet in my guest room, which was cool and dry, and let it sit there for six months. Uh, I I won't go into detail about the brew but i'll tell you that uh, i ended up making a delicious pilsner with that malt so let's see if that was uh, an anomaly or if that was a demonstration of the way things really work huh
1: indeed well and i wanted to say uh, one thing about the recipe so uh we went back and forth with the igors about what sort of beer to do and one of the concerns that we had from the igors was well you know look if i'm intentionally making you know two to five to however many gallons of bad beer. Well, I don't really want to do that, you know, because, hey, that's time and potentially bad beer. So part of the reason to choose to do the wheat beer is one, I think wheat will be more susceptible to the uh, the oxidation uh, due to protein levels. But I also think uh, a wheat beer is imminently more rescuable. So one of the uh, new notions that we're adding to some of the experiments is, okay, I've made bad beer, now what? Uh, and <laughs> basically, with the with the wheat beer, wheat beer is really super easy to uh, rescue. I learned this trick a long time ago from one of my mentors in the brewing world, uh, MB Rains, and uh, MB taught me there is very little that fruit won't help you cover up, uh, particularly with a wheat beer. So if you do this recipe and end up with say five gallons of a less than ideal American wheat beer, then guess what? You now have a perfect base for 5 gallons of American fruited wheat beer or American coffee wheat beer or American something else wheat beer and your guests will never know the difference.
0: As if as if having a wheat beer wasn't bad enough, now you're going to put fruit in it too. Hey, and you know,
1: some of us actually like wheat beer.
0: Well, I'm sorry for you, but I okay, I I I admit that that's true. Some people do.
1: Yeah. So, that's uh, that's part of the idea there, and uh, we really hope that people give this a give this a shot because, let's face it, there's a a lot of times where this will happen to homebrewers. I mean, if I didn't crush my malt immediately before a brew session, this would happen to me so often it wouldn't even be funny. So, <laughs> yeah. and we also know uh, talking with people, oh well, a month's not going to be enough time to really get an impact. Uh, part of the other reason to choose a wheat beer was, uh, people were initially worried if we had a lot of color malt in there, the color malts might actually interfere with the oxidative process because they do serve as antioxidants. Uh, and so, you know, the thing to keep in mind as we're doing this experiment is that all of these are good questions. They are valid questions and they are possible future topics of exploration.
0: That's right. That's right. Um, one experiment begets another, huh? Indeed.
1: Indeed. I think it's not science if you don't walk away from the experiment without more questions.
0: Yeah, well, that's usually the way it works for us, you know. Okay, so we're uh, we're done here in the lab. We're gonna wander on over to the lounge and uh, have a little chat with Annie Johnson, a multi award winning home brewer. <music>
1: All right, welcome everybody to the lounge here at Experimental Brewing. Uh, this is where we sit down and we talk with some of the most fascinating people that we can find in the brewing and home brewing industry.
0: And and, and they're so, not us.
1: Yeah, well, I won't exactly... <laughs> look, the amount of time I spend in my head, I don't find myself fascinating anymore. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, anyway, this is where we where we like to talk to people. You've heard some of our previous interviews. And Denny, you've come to us with your second uh, interview from the Pacific Northwest Homebrewers Conference. So why don't you give us some context on exactly who we're talking to today?
0: All righty. I had a, a chance to sit down and talk with Annie Johnson, who, besides being one of the sweetest people you will ever meet in your life, is a kick-butt homebrewer. Annie's job these days is uh, as the master brewer for Pico Brew, but uh, the reason she's there is because of her demonstrated prowess. She was the Pilsner Urquell master home brewer, winning a competition that went on uh, worldwide, and uh, having the brewmaster at Pilsner Urquell tell her how much her beer reminded him of home. In addition. Annie was also the AHA Homebrewer of the Year and with a beer style that will really uh, surprise you. Uh it's a great story. So kick back, uh grab yourself a beer, relax and listen to Annie tell you how it is. Hey everybody! This is Denny, and I am sitting here at the Pacific Northwest Homebrew Conference—the inaugural one—with Annie Johnson, who we're going to talk to about her brewing and loggers and all that kind of good stuff.
2: Hiya! Hi. Hey, thanks for taking the time to do this. Oh, thanks for asking
0: me. Oh, Thank my you. My pleasure. My pleasure. So, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your brewing history.
2: Well, I, I started in 1998. Um, I used to work for a concert promoter named Bill Graham. I'll turn the way back machine. <laughs> oh, I know Bill Graham. <laughs> yeah, he was a great guy. And we did a show up in Humboldt County, right on the river. So when it was over, they'd give us this big fat wad of cash because it was one of those businesses. Yeah. <laughs> and we'd go over to Fort Bragg to decompress. So I walked by a homebrew shop and I saw this kid. Uh-huh. I got this money. I I get it. I think I spent 50 bucks. So I got, you know, the plastic pail and a glass carboy and all the the bottling equipment. And then I went home and I, I started brewing with my friend Rosie, my best friend, and her husband, Josh, and we would brew on the weekends. And we're big football fans and Oakland sports fans. So all of our beers were named after Raiders and Oakland Athletics players. They, were, they weren't that good. <laughs> I think our first one was the Tim Brown Ale because we were big Tim Brown fans. But um, they got better. Then Rosie moved about a year later. So she, because the kid I originally bought for her as a birthday gift, took it with her. And it was probably a month later, I got it back in the mail, and this big box of beer, because she had moved to Delaware. She said, hey, because she moved to Rehoboth, she said, I found this awesome brewery called Dogfish Head. Here's the, and so she sent me all these 750 ml awesome, awesome beers. I thought, this is really cool so that kind of inspired me to get going and trying different styles and then I think it was 2001 and I did a an amber and I thought it was pretty good and I put it in a competition and got a first place <laughs> so I was bit by the bug it became a self-proclaimed ribbon whore oh yes <laughs> no, I went through that phase too oh yeah I couldn't get enough I was entering all over the country and and then with so many good brewers in Sacramento, it was kind of a friendly rivalry to I'm gonna beat you know, Mike Reddle this year, I'm gonna take down McDowell. I'm taking down Jay Z, he's out, you know, and <laughs> it was kinda of fun uh, for a while, but I couldn't keep up with <laughs> those guys. They take brewing um, you know, to a whole different level as far as, as many right. as they could do. But it was still fun and then I got involved with um at the encouragement, actually, of Jamil and, and Bess Sangary to get into judging. And with Dave Sapsis and David Teckham and Kevin Pratt, they really helped me learn to, you know, to to learn about styles and things. I know I'm running on, so you No, 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 go ahead. Keep going. Keep but going. then I found your website. <laughs> I really, mean, the, the old, the Danny Brew. Because I was going on the forums a little bit, and I was intimidated on the More Beer forums some um, because there weren't many females, but I didn't know that much. Uh-huh. And, you know, I remember one day there must have been four-page deep thread on how much whirlflock flock you should use. You know, homebrewers are a very spirited <laughs> bunch. So I, I never, I was a lurker. Right. But I stumbled on yours because you helped, and I got the Denny Brew. This is about four years later after that, and I got into the batch barging, bore right, and not drinking when I brew and paying attention and then my beers got better oh I'm honored yeah well it was you know it was it was sometimes you know I was still a little bit in the competition but then I started getting the the blue ribbons and trying different styles and conquering styles and I spent three years on Belgians and then moving on you know and my American ales and the last thing I did because I was so intimidated was the German beers right you know, I found the Czech beers easier, but the German beers just—they just freak me out.
0: And that—that that really seems to be where you've spent a lot of your time. You know, is, yeah. is making those German styles. To...
2: Yeah, loggers. I, I really like. I really like loggers 'cause because they are what they are, and there's nothing to hide behind. So
0: you were the the Pilsner Urkel master home brewer.
2: Yeah, they—they they used to have this awesome competition. Um, where you you could get... The, the beer was being, being judged by the Irkwell team. Yeah. So they all came over and they held regionals in New York and Chicago and San Francisco. So I was in the San Francisco leg and I thought my beer was pretty good. So I was definitely going to go. And Botslav was going to be there, the mm-hmm. master brewer. And I made it to the second round. There was... Ten of us that moved on to the second round. I think there were in our leg, San Francisco. We had 38 entries, so I was stoked to make it to round two. Mm-hmm. And then, um, then they were calling off, you know, the winners, and it got to one, and it was me. And I was like, Ooh, I was so excited. I was so excited because the, the grand prize was awesome. But and then Václav told me he he pulled me aside. He said, I felt like I was at home. Wow. He goes, it, it was. That, that's my... almost better than the prize. I mean, that's the real yeah. prize, isn't it? He said, he goes, it was my favorite since I've been in, in the States. I thought, okay. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, the Homebrewer of the Year winning that thing it was really, really cool. But that was something for me to have this, you know, this, this person, this master brewer, this, you know, this lineage of his father his grandfather only nine in the history of the brewery to tell me that it was that good I thought And I've made it. I think I, I think I can claim I make pretty good beer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or at least. Check so. pills. <laughs> and you were you were you've been the AHA Humber of the Year also? that was the next year. And I was talking about that earlier today. Those two years I only brewed twice. <laughs> and bo- they were both of those beers because I was going through a, a a personal illness, I just wasn't feeling it. And I, I wasn't really having a desire for alcohol so i could only drink things that were light right. so occasionally i'd have a glass of of sauvignon blanc but a red wine turned me off a, an ipa a dark beer I'm like um, yuck uh, so i just figured well this is a good time for me to just brew another Czech pilsner because i really want in on this competition and then with the the light beer uh, i had read that article you know, four years—I think it was six years prior in BYO—and I save all my magazines. And I, because I, I knew one day I'd do it. And it was written by Betsy Parks, the editor, and it's so well written. I just followed it to a T. Wow. And then I drank it. and I thought, well, I didn't have much taste for alcohol. I thought, well, this is this doesn't taste like hardly anything. <laughs> so, so you know it's right on. <laughs> yeah, and I almost didn't mail it off. I waited till the last day, and then I had to FedEx it. It was a hundred bucks. I thought, forget it. I'm not gonna do it. It's a light logger's It's not gonna win anyway. And then um, you know the, the back of your head goes, oh, just do it. So, I mailed it off. And, and lo and behold! And lo and behold, I got a text that hey, you won! I'm like, awesome! do what did I get first, second, third? That was so cool. They're like, no, you you won all! You won it all! I'm like, you gotta be kidding me! Yeah, I, I
0: remember being at that conference when they announced it, and you know, it was it was stunning. To see a woman win, first of all, because, you know, as you know, there are not a lot of women women in homebrewing, more than there used to be, but not a lot still. And then with that particular style of beer, I mean, it's like I was just, we hadn't actually met at that point, but I was just standing there cheering you, because I thought it was all so cool.
2: Oh, yeah. You know? I, I wish I could have been there, but it was, you know, a choice I had to make. I needed to stay home. Yeah, right. But, yeah, it was... <laughs> Pretty damn cool. So now you get the question we ask
0: everybody: hmm. What's your favorite curse word? <laughs> 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 okay, great. You are you are with ninety nine percent of the people we have asked.
2: You know, it might be a tie. Ty- I say a lot. Yeah. Yeah, okay. but I say. <laughs> <laughs> When did you first discover good beer? Uh, my mom introduced me to good beer because she was um, she was a German teacher, and she was a hell of a cook. So she liked good things. I mean, well, we we're all the Johnsons are. We all have a little bit of girth to us, but she she loved to entertain. So. We and 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 always gave to us. Let's try it. We're gonna have wine with this dinner. Try this wine, and then she would. She taught me about wine and the shape of the bottle and the region it comes from because she was so into it. And then she loved good beer, and she spent her in the '50s. She was she a Beethoven scholarship she got from the U.S. Army wow. to entertain for the troops because she was a classically trained wow. pianist and a great singer too. So she. Loved German beer. Good German beer. And she would tell me, I said, well this one has a lot of head on it. You know, the one that dad drinks, it just goes away in about five seconds. <laughs> See, my dad would drink the eight ounce Olympias. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, he drank drink yeah. about half of it. He was a super lightweight. But she says, yeah, well, yeah, your father doesn't like, he, does, he likes the cheap stuff. <laughs> so, and so I think my first beers that I loved were German beers. I've always loved German beers. My first craft beer that i couldn't get enough of was red hook and this was in 90 91 the esb mm-hmm. i loved it yeah. and i couldn't get into Sierra Nevada which was weird for me because i'm from a town 30 miles north and everybody well, you got to try this and it was it smelled like bad cheese to me or something i couldn't get into it but they had a porter that they came out with right. which i really liked and then I started to move on a little bit. And then I got my first taste of Jamaica Red. And I was hooked on that one. I <laughs> that, and that's probably, outside of lagers, the American Red Ale or the California Red. Because yeah. they're very covetous. That was my favorite, especially the Jamaica Red. I love that beer. It's so, is so that, good. Is that your favorite style to brew also? That's my house beer. So it- if you ever visit me, I will always have my amber Oh. I will always have my amber on okay, tap. Okay, well, great. I'll That's continue. the one I learned how to um, batch barge with. Oh, cool. And borla Cool. I yeah. guess
0: I better try that one of these days. Yeah, so. it's good. it's more on the malty. So, omitting the word balance, describe your brewing
2: philosophy. About here. Gee, I probably would have never used balanced. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, again, you're the only one who wouldn't have done that. No, yeah. my brewing philosophy, uh, very, um, very brief, yeah. E- yeah. nail that house beer. Bre- pick a style and know it inside and out. Be able to brew it without calling on the recipe. Hone your techniques. Read. Brew it over and over again? Brew it over and over. Brew, research, brew, rinse, repeat. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. And, I like and that. Because then you will get a process down. Right. And you can move to the next style.
0: Yep. I've really found that to be true yeah. to myself, too. So, which beer do you find yourself longing to drink?
2: All the time? Yes. Yeah. It's that unpasteurized, unfiltered uh, Pilsner Quelle. It's so good. I said earlier today, it's a, pardon my French, it's just f***ing delicious. It's yeah. so good. It's such a good beer. That's great. But I want it. I crave it. Yeah. That's and I think about, when am I going to get back there? Because I want some more. And you can only get it there? You can only get it there. And they, 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 the brewery actually takes it and they put it in a tank. It looks like a milk truck. Wow. And they take it to a special... Houses, beer houses around the Czech Republic, and they put that truck in the middle of the road, hook up the hoses, and fill up tanks in the beer house. So they call it tank beer. Wow, it's amazing. Wow, It's that's amazing. remarkable. It's so good, and they really have a knack for pouring the right beer.
0: So, what's the most unusual beery thing you've done? Like either brewing or drinking while you run naked down the street, or you mean maybe the weirdest beer? Well, just no. the most unusual thing you've done related to beer, whether it's brewing or drinking or an event. Or. <laughs>
2: Gee whiz. I'll tell you what, with the, the young interns at work, lately we've had this thing where we go out and do shotgunning in the parking lot. I'm, I'm going to be 51 in a month. so I'm, and, I, and I always get second place. There's one kid I can't be. But I'm like beating all the other kids. I'm like amateurs. But, uh, you know. Well, if it's any
0: consolation to you, by the time you get to be my age, you won't even remember 51 anymore. (laughs)
2: No.
0: Okay, so next question. What common wisdom brewing practice do you think is wrong or overinflated?
2: That's a good one. Um... Can we come back to that one? Sure.
0: Of course. If you want to think about it for a while, not a problem. I, uh, what what interesting discovery have you made when you're brewing that you think people don't pay enough attention to?
2: Oh, it's definitely... Um, well, the one thing that they I recommend is just not drinking when you brew. Because you, you, you pay less attention. Mm-hmm. You know, your, your processes go... Yeah. away and you, that's when you end up with cinnamon in an IPA <laughs> it seemed like a good idea at the time <laughs> yeah I mean
0: I, I agree I only drink when I'm brewing like when I'm like at some sort of brewing event or something yeah. like that and at that point I just kind of write off the beer it's going to be whatever it's going to be yeah. and you know I don't worry about it So, um, so do you have any favorite ingredients you know stuff that you turn to that you know you're going to get like the result you like
2: out of it um, I, no. I mean, I, well, I've been b- branching out some now and brewing with herbs. Oh, interesting. And, yeah, and some spices. I mean, I, I I love Pilsner malt. I won't not have some. And I like Munich malt, too. No. You know? Do you have
0: a favorite brand of Pilsner?
2: Um, I love the, the Wireman. Mm-hmm. I know I'm saying Wireman wrong. I guess it's Weirman now.
0: Yeah, well, that's okay. I'm, I'm not German. You're you closer mean, than I am.
2: And I, but I'm really enjoying the Wireman. Oh,
0: great. The m- malts. I just had a chance to brew with some of their Bark Pils malt the other day. I
2: did too. I think it's great.
0: Do I you like it? I haven't, I haven't tried the beer yet. I just brewed with it like last Thursday, so it's yeah. fermenting away right now.
2: I think I've used it in a, in a Pilsner and I've used it in a Saison and I did a side-by-side with the Saison yeah um, and I think it's it's got a little bit more depth to it Right.
0: That's what I've heard. Yeah,
2: so. it's got... It's wonderful.
0: Yeah, I, I did a German Pills, you know, just yeah. just nothing but uh, but the Bark Pills and Hallowtower Herzbrücker, and I'm really interested to see how that's going to come out. And, yeah. You know, I'm looking forward to it, so... Uh, what do you think is something that more people should... What kind of beer should people drink more of or get into more? Is there a particular I mean, style? I think people
2: should... should um, no, I don't like to tell people what to have, but I wish that people yeah. would try beers that weren't so... Um, or get more into beers that were not so alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I'm not big on the 10%ers, unless it's a real treat, like a Belgian Dark. Right, yeah. Or something yeah. like that. I wish people would... would go back to the land of Belgians and I wish they would go back to more and revisit the good English styles of beers
0: well you know April 7th is session beer day yeah. and we have been really pushing that and encouraging people to start brewing session beers especially for that day in the hopes that maybe that will like carry on to be a year round kind of thing for them
2: yeah because I got like a proper English bitter is really nice yeah on the right day, it, it, I drink with the seasons. I'm a seasonal drinker. That's a smart way to do so it. So I'm moving into what I call my springtime beers, and I'm moving away from the, 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 the darker beers that I like more, and the even IPAs so much I like them in the wintertime. But I'm kind of moving out. I'm transitioning.
0: Yeah, that, me too. I've yeah. started my, my pilsner brewing for the exactly summer. Exactly. I started you
2: know? as well. So I'm I'm moving on, and then I'll move into maybe a, a goza here and there, and kolsch I love, and
0: right. So so, right so uh, you want you want to go back to the the common wisdom brewing practice you think is wrong
2: is incorrect pe- something people worry about that they don 't need to worry about I think people are again overly anxious about Hitting every exact number that they see in a book, they see a style or they get a recipe that says, you know, ten fifty-six, and then it finishes at ten twelve. They lose their mind if it finishes at ten ten right. or ten fourteen. Right. Cut yourself some slack. Relax a little bit. It's, it's just a, beer. It's just a beer. It's just a range. Right. You know. It's so. It's it's the right way is your way. <laughs> right on lady that is exactly true and I love the advice I love the books and everything but um, at some point stop telling me what to do and if I do it this way and it works for me And I better have some fun. Yes, yes. I want to have fun when I brew.
0: Right, exactly. I'm the same way. Okay, last question. What non-beer thing are you fascinated by or obsessed with? Something that has nothing to do with beer or anything like that. When you're not thinking about beer, what are you thinking about doing?
2: Mm -hmm. That's a good one. (laughs) I'm obsessed with... In my other life, I'm a. I would be an airline pilot. Cool. I am obsessed with planes, um, and I love the the tails. So when I see one in the sky, I look up. because I can identify? I can say without a doubt, na- domestic and international. I can identify 99 percent wow. just by the colors. Have you ever flown a plane? No, God no. <laughs> My boss has a plan. I said, I'm not getting anything smaller than a 737, <laughs> but I, I'm obsessed with planes i've i've loved them since i was a kid that is so cool and air shows i'm a sucker for an air show and I but these commercial airline pilots and i just think it's it's fascinating i watch the wings bend and move as it takes off and i know exactly when we're leveling out so we can pressurize i know because i fly southwest all the time i know the codes and the dings and i know wow. things and i know when something's not right <laughs> That must be scary. (laughs) It is not a great feeling. Only once did that happen when something wasn't right. But, you know, it all worked out fine. But it doesn't usually take you... An hour and a half to fly from Seattle to Portland, so I knew something was wrong. And I was, we're not supposed to go to Portland, we're supposed to go to Phoenix. <laughs> I'm like, we're not getting very high up, you know, but it was fine. But I'm obsessed with planes. Oh, that's so cool. I yeah. never would have guessed that about you. I love them. I love them. Think about them every day. Well, Annie Johnson, thank you
0: so much for being with us today. Thanks, it has just Danny. been such a joy to talk to you and to know you and to get to hang out with you likewise thanks so much oh you betcha sweetheart
2: yeah cheers I love <laughs> you so much
0: and that was annie johnson where we were chatting at the uh, inaugural pacific northwest homebrew conference back in the beginning of march and i gotta say i never would have known that annie was an airplane freak that that uh, just never would have crossed my mind at all
1: huh? yeah that's kind of cool i mean that's like uh, me back in the day when i was a kid just Fawning obsessively over military aircraft, but you, <laughs> you know, know, I
0: did the same thing when I was a kid. Isn't that interesting? So, oh, yeah, really.
1: Well, well, and I and I gotta say, I absolutely uh, love Annie. She's uh, she's a, a hoot, as we would say back home. And you know, also we got to give her credit because she's a the one of the only people that I've ever talked to who's gone and made our chicken beer or a variant right. of our chicken beer, I should say. And that that takes some incredible faith.
0: or something. And because I love Annie, I'm not going to say what that other something is. (laughs) Alrighty, we have reached the point in the program where we try and see if we're smart enough to answer your questions. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time we talked about beer? Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. beer, beer, beer. Uh, yes, it's question and answer time with Denny and Drew. Uh, and... It's going to be a wild and wacky day because we have some interesting, interesting questions and came up with some interesting data when we were trying to answer them. So, Drew is going to take our first question today, which comes from Gary Jones in England. Wow, I'm impressed. Go for it, Drew. Well, yeah.
1: So, well, Gary was the one who uh, had the previous comment about uh, session beer and weight loss uh, all the way back there at the beginning of the show, if you can remember back that long ago. Uh, And he wrote in, and, God, I love the fact that this question actually made me stop and think. Uh, So, he writes, I have been experimenting with session beer brewing, and I have a question. One of the keys to a nice session beer is to get some body and mouthfeel into the beer. I have a batch of Drew's Oat Mild in the Fermenter at the moment to try. Awesome. Love that beer. But I read on a forum post recently that dry-hopping session beers can strip them of some of their body... Because the process reintroduces some diastatic enzymes to the beer, have you heard of this? Is there any evidence for it? And if so, what's the scientific basis for diastatic activity being introduced or prompted by dry hopping? All right, now this question was awesome because Gary sent this in to us uh, earlier this week, and when I read it, my I had that knee-jerk reaction that you know I tend to do because you know it's like oh I've read a lot of things about homebrewing I know the answers to all this sort of stuff and my immediate answer was what. No, there's no way that's a thing.
0: Yeah, I had the same reaction.
1: Yeah. And so we actually, uh, we asked Gary from, for some additional information. And he gave us the homebrew shop uh, column that, that he found this information in. And so even after reading that, I was like, no, homebrew shops spreading bad, bad information. Bad homebrew shops, bad homebrew shops. Um, and it literally did go that way. And I think Denny was in on that train as well. That's until right. Until just recently. So uh, we uh, we started to do some research because I wanted to, uh, we want to make sure that when we're giving you guys answers, if it's not something that we're 120% sure of, and particularly if it's something that makes us stop and have that reaction of, huh, huh, no, uh, that we do actually have some foundation for what we're talking about. So And I think, we I think this is
0: a, a, a good point to give a, a a big shout out to Jared Runyon at Brewcraft who uh, actually turned us on to some of the info that we're going to be sharing with you guys today.
1: Yeah, so we we reached out because, you know, this is one of the great things that, that we can do is if we have enough lead time, we can reach out to a lot of the people that we know and say, uh, hey, does anybody know anything about this? Have you heard anything about this, particularly on something as weird as this? And so as we started to do research, one of the things that Jared pulled up was a paper from the Institute of Brewing, Brewing Research Scheme in 1941, February of 1941, from a uh, British scientific, uh, scientific journal, the diastatic activity of hops, together with a note of maltase in hops. So and we went, huh? Yeah. So it turns out that there is actually something here, and it's kind of cool. Hops as a plant do actually carry a maltase uh, diastatic power. Uh, now, this paper was from 1941. Uh, I haven't been able to find a lot of more recent research about it in our in our brief little run around trying to figure it out. But if you read the activity, and uh, I'll give you guys the a link to the paper in the podcast c- c- description. But it's called "The Diastatic Activity of Hops," together with a note on Maltese and Hops from J. Janicki, uh, W. V. Costasanth, uh, Coss- A. Parker, and T. K. Walker, and. They talked about, from the point of view of 1939, that 46 years prior, uh, two scientists, Brown and Morris, had demonstrated the presence of diastase in hops. uh, And no additional research had really been done about it. So it turns out that, yes, there is a diastatic power and effect of dry hopping from hops added post-wort production, so aka post-boil. Because hops that go through a boil or a mash, they'll have this diastase that they have in them. Uh, denatured, right? You know, the boil will kill all this off, so it wouldn't have an impact. But it turns out, if you do add hops into a, the wort after it's cooled, they can possibly have an impact. But, and here's a big but, because we started to run through it, you read through the experiments that these guys did, and they did uh, a number of experiments to demonstrate, yes, there is diastase in, in the hops, not as much as what you find in, say, barley, thank God, and uh, but it turns out there's sort of a, a a double whammy effect that's happening here. This is most prevalent in hops that are seeded, that they still have the seeds. So uh, trying to see here, just says here that uh, seedless hops showed less sacrificing activity than seeded hops, right? So it, right, and I, and
0: it's important it's important to keep in mind that when this was done seventy some years ago. Most of the hops around were English, and most of those hops had seeds. So yeah. you know that was and a much more common situation than we see now.
1: Right, I mean, and just and just like uh, the growers of hops' favorite cousin, uh, that's being legalized in a lot of states, uh, have figured out how to make more seedless varieties. So you're not getting a bag of seeds and stems. Hop manufacturers, hop brewers finally started to figure this trick out too because there are problems to this. Uh, It used to be until about the 1950s that a lot of brewers actually liked to use seeded hops because of additional uh, polyphenols and tannin compounds and bittering compounds that they picked up from them. Uh, But afterwards, because of the fact that it showed that uh, seeds have a drastically negative impact on storage and the ability for you to keep these things around for a long period of time, growers began to Uh, focus on producing seedless varieties and seedless uh, growing methodologies. So that's why we do everything from rhizomes nowadays, uh, cloning and also for being able to select out male and female plants and only keep the females around. Uh, But yeah, uh, so it was more more prevalent in seeded hops than seedless hops, which is probably part of a reason why this was written in a UK homebrew uh, supply store uh, notice and not something that any of us here in America that we had talked to had ever heard about. So the, these guys did a lot of experiments. Uh, one of the things that they showed was that if you have hops and the hop tannins, so all those complex polyphenols that are in the hops, they actually interfere with the sacrification process that you'll get from the hops. So if you have enough tannin and you don't find a way to bind it up, uh, you get a much lower impact. That's probably part of the reason why the seeded hops uh, work so so much more than the seedless hops do. Uh, and so if you walk through their experiments, you'll see that a lot of their experiments are starting with the idea of using uh peptone, for instance, to bind up the tannin so they could really drive home the effect of the sacrification, uh, enzymes in the hops. Right. So having said all that, what do we think? Do we think that there's a real reason to worry about this? And part of it would be if you're in a place that has seeded hops, uh, we heard from, uh, uh, Jared also pulled up uh, information from uh, Terry Ferndorf, who, if you don't know her, she is incredibly awesome. Uh, one of the founders of the Pink Boots Society. A uh, longtime brewer, knows a lot about things. And uh, when she was asked about this, she said that uh, traditional UK hops, uh, and what this guy might uh, be regularly using, are lousy with seeds. And so it, this may be one of those... Across the pond versus this side of the pond, uh, ingredient difference differences that we're seeing because we really don't see that problem. And I've never seen a craft brewer in the U.S. ever talk about trying to worry about their final gravity because of uh, their dry hopping. And trust me, we dry hop the ever living hell out of everything. Well, and another British uh, uh brewer, uh, former professional brewer turned uh, homebrewer experiment over there on port66.co.uk, uh, he was talking about. Uh, he also f- figured that there might be an impact from the fact that we use a lot of caramalt and carapils uh, in the beers. Uh, I'm a little less certain about that. I would actually guess that there's probably more of a worry uh, from adding hops into uh, the secondary and actually stirring up the activity of, uh, activity of the fermenter again. And, and I,
0: I've, I've just got to say that this is one of those things that may be theoretically possible but uh, we have yet to see any practical evidence of it really happening. Uh, So unless you're using hops that are three-quarters seeds to leaf, or you're making an extract with your hops using peptone, I really don't think in a practical sense you have anything to worry about.
1: Yeah, and I also reached out to uh, one of my favorite people, John Palmer, and I'd asked him if he'd ever heard about this and gave him a link to the paper. And uh, his reaction was, huh, <laughs> which is great. And yeah. uh, he, he kind of agreed with me that uh, more than likely what we're uh, what would be a more likely impact than any sort of of sacrification enzymes from the hops, uh, particularly modern seedless hops, is that we're seeing sort of the mixing from the, the hops being added in, oxygen coming out from uh, within the hop pellets themselves and all of that kind of reactivating uh, your yeast and kind of kicking off a little bit more fermentation.
0: If, if, if it truly is. I mean, a lot of people, when they add dry hops to a beer, see bubbles start to form in the beer and those bubbles are nothing more than uh, just CO2 coming out of solution because of the mm-hmm. nucleation sites on the hops. So the the question becomes, you know is there a measured effect on the beer or is this just an observation of seeing bubbles and somebody jumping to the conclusion that there's fermentation going on yeah. we don't know uh, and we're going to keep looking into this and we'll we'll keep you informed about any more research that uh, that we come up with uh, one way or the other on this subject so- well and,
1: I, and and before we leave it i just really want to say wow I'm not kidding when I say I like a question that comes in like that. That makes me go, uh, uh, uh what?
0: Yeah. The questions uh, that the, the makes you question what you, th- what you thought you knew, you know? Uh, and I, I appreciate, uh, Jared tossing us the research to get us going on this line of, of questioning. So, Absolutely. so, so we got another hop question coming up. This question comes from Michael Brown via Facebook, and he wants to know about hop degradation in the freezer. Shelf life and how long they last. Also, do old hops give off a metallic flavor? And perhaps the 60 versus 90 minute mash and boils. Boy, now there's a a wide variety of things. Okay, hop degradation in the freezer. Heat and air are the two main enemies of hops. Maybe light a little bit, but I wouldn't worry about that as much. Uh, So, let's say that uh, you store your hops in the freezer by taking the open bag that you get from your homebrew shop and kind of folding over the top and taping it closed. Let's say that your best friend stores his hops in in, an oxygen proof uh, vacuum freezer bag Vacuum seals the hops and keeps those in the freezer. Uh, those hops are going to last longer because they are protected from oxygen and and heat. Uh, exactly how long hops are going to last really varies, uh, not only with your storage conditions and method, but also depending on what is known as the HSI or hop storage index of that particular lot of hops. Now, I don't know how many people are actually doing this, but I know that these days YCH hops, formerly uh, hop union is coming out with new packaging for home brewers. And they are actually listing the hop storage index on the hop package. So you can use that To figure the degradation of the hop over time and uh, we'll we'll put the uh, the formula on the website so that uh, if you end up getting an hsi number for your hops you can use it to kind of give yourself uh, a heads up on what their life might be and of course that hsi number assumes perfect storage conditions uh, in a freezer protected from oxygen so the in general, I would say the answer to how long they last is it can be a long time if you treat them right. So, you know, let's, let's start there. Okay. Do old hops give off a metallic flavor? I, I can't say that I have noticed that. Uh, of course the, you know, you have the old, you know, the, the cheese, the, the dirty socks notes, the stuff like that from the old hops. Have you ever noticed a metallic flavor from old hops?
1: No. In fact, I was going to say the only thing I've ever, that I can really think of are the more oxidative notes, the cheese and sort of bad grass clippings. Yeah, Uh, like I tend to think of like a lot of whole leaf English hops that we get over here.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I've I've had oxidized beers that have had a metallic quality to them, but I don't believe that uh, that that is necessarily from the hops. And I don't think that the hops themselves will take on a metallic flavor. And since uh, he's stuck an addendum on there, let's uh, just do that real quick. Uh, 60 versus 90 minute mash and boil. Okay. My take on it. Uh, 90 minute mash m- gives me a slightly more formidable word. I know that there are people out there who do 20 minute mashes and, uh, claim success. Uh, I have not had, uh, that much success with it yet. Although I, that's one of the things I intend to look into. um, But all of my mashes are at least 60 minutes. And for beers that I want exceptionally dry, like Belgian beers or Pilsners, I go with a 90-minute mash, 60 versus 90-minute boils. The only time I do a boil longer than 60 minutes is uh, if I haven't hit my uh, original gravity yet and I need to boil longer to evaporate more water to get to the OG of the beer that I'm making. To me, that's the only reason to do a 90-minute mash, or excuse me, a 90-minute boil. Uh, if you start doing exceptionally long boils, you will start seeing some darkening of the wort. Some people call that caramelization, and I call that not so. Not so. Yeah. Um, and that's that's because um, caramelization truly takes place at – 360 degrees and you can't get to that in a kettle of boiling wort and you know you hear people positing that uh, posit now there's a word that doesn't get used enough huh you hear people positing that you know right on the bottom of the kettle where the flame is hitting it and the wort interfaces with it it could get hot enough there to caramelize it I don't believe that to be the case, and I have never seen any evidence that it is. So.
1: Well, I, I, I think again, it goes back to you know, sort of your pet peeve rant from earlier in the show about juicy. I think it's an inaccurate use of the term. Um, I don't think it's kettle caramelization. I think it's you know just myard reactions. Right. Exactly. Those get, those get dark. So, but uh, but in common parlance, people tend to look at those as Oh, look, uh, this got caramelized. Yeah, and it, it,
0: it truly hasn't, but the same, uh, the same kind of Maillard reactions that uh, produce caramelization also produce some of the other things that you're seeing in your beer. So really, that's what it is. It's Maillard reactions, uh, changing the flavor of the beer, but it's not truly caramelization. And while I'm at it, get off my lawn.
1: <laughs> Shout out the moon. Shout out the moon.
0: Yeah. Okay, next question comes from Jeff Hittinger via email, and Drew's gonna take this one.
1: Yeah, he says, uh, I have a question about using malt Goya as a yeast starter. I read in a brew your own magazine back in the 90s about using this product for building your yeast starters. I have used it since out of convenience, so that I do not have to pressure can my own wort, etc. Boo, pressure can your own wort. It's fun. Uh like everything else though, uh, they've added corn syrup to the ingredients list. It still works the same. Would you use this product? Would you recommend this trick to your listeners? I have found it very convenient for building starters for the last 20 years. Uh, yeah. So Maltagoya uh, there's a whole series of uh, non uh, non-fermented beer products out there called Malta. Uh, it's very popular in the C- uh, Caribbean and South America. Uh, Maltagoya is probably the uh, the most common one that you'll find here, along with like Malta Hatui. Um, because Maltagoya is actually made here in the US by Lion Brewery. Uh, and it really is, it's unfermented beer. If you go and you look at the ingredients for it, uh, the ingredients are listed as water, pale malt, caramel malt, high fructose corn syrup, corn syrup, caramel color, phosphoric acid, salt, and hops. Now remember, in the US, ingredients have to be listed in order of use. So that tells us that water is the most abundant ingredient, which makes sense because it is. It's the same thing in beer followed by pale malt, followed by caramel malt, followed by the two corn syrups, and then a little bit of caramel color, uh, phosphoric acid, salt, and hops. So you're still going to have a product, and I don't have a nutritional breakdown in terms of what the actual uh, sugar ratios are, but because you still have that uh, pale malt and caramel malt as, your, as the higher ingredients, you're more likely to have more maltose uh, in there than you are going to have your fructose from the corn syrup. Uh, now, having said that, I know a lot of homebrewers who like to do this because I think you can get, if you know where to find it, like it's say Walmart, you have a Walmart that has a big Latin section uh, near you. You can get like a case of it for basically a buck a bottle and it makes for a nice cheap starter material. I think it works great as a emergency. I've got to make a starter and I don't have any DME or LME on my hands, Uh, but it's not my preferred way to go. Uh, But. As with all other things, if you're using the product right now, even after the corn syrup edition, and you're still getting results that are adequate enough for your needs, uh, I'm not going to discourage you from using it. Uh, I think there are better ways of going. See the pressure canning answer. Uh, and also, it turns out, I'm not really a huge fan of the flavor of Malta to begin with. So, as much as I like beer, I don't really like the Malta flavor. Um... So I sort of get hesitant about using it to make starters if it's going to make a component of my beer that I don't like. Uh, what do you think, Denny?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I would guess that I would say that uh, it is results-driven. And if it's working, then it's working. Uh, as to the flavor, you know... um if, if you're decanting your starters, you're not going to have to worry about it. Uh, maybe you wouldn't decant it if it was made with, uh, with a DME or LME base, but uh, you might want to if you're using the Malta. On the other hand, for me, I'm not about to go out and get a pressure canner. My kitchen is already crammed with stuff and I have no place to put it. So uh, Malta would be a better option for me than pressure canning. But I don't find it very difficult to just boil up a quarter wort when I need to make a starter and, uh, and do that too. So uh, I would say that if it's working for you, it works for you, and go ahead
1: and keep doing it. And By the way, I do want to say in doing research for this question to go double-check all the ingredients and whatnot, I discovered a site that just makes me laugh at the fact that it, it exists uh, from the Minnesota Miss- uh, Museum of the Mississippi called Delicious Sparkling Temperance Drinks dot net. Because <laughs> that's what the world needs. Deli- uh, delicious sparkling temperance drinks. Um uh, right, dot, and, net. Uh, yeah, dot net. And then uh Jeff had a uh a follow-up question uh was I have an uncle that loves Coors, not Coors Light. Do you know where I can find a recipe? I know Drew said that his mentor was able to replicate Budweiser very closely. So yeah, this was what we were talking about in a previous episode where the guy who taught me how to brew uh, all grain, a guy by the name of Doug King, who sadly passed away shortly after I started brewing and shortly after he started teaching me. Uh, yeah, Doug uh, Doug was famous for a beer that he made called Doug Weiser, which was pretty much a spot on clone of Anheuser-Busch's Budweiser. And so my recommendation to Jeff is, yeah, you can go out there, you can look, do a search for cores, you'll find recipes out there. Uh, but for the most part, what you're going to find is, uh, hey, uh, American two-row, American six-row plus flaked maize uh, with some light hopping in it in order to give you some sort of hop character. And so my recommendation was if you want to kind of start in the right direction, uh, feel free to take the Doug Weiser recipe off the Maltos Falcons website. Uh, replace the uh, rice that's in the recipe with corn. Uh, if you want to go full hog and do traditional uh, American cereal mash, use corn grits. If you want to cheat, uh, skip the cereal mash and use flaked maize. Uh, if you want to go the Miller route, you could totally use corn syrup because that's what Miller uses. Um, and I think if you start that with that, you'll be in a, a good place to get into the Coors territory. And I think more importantly than the recipe is going to be really paying attention to your fermentation practices and your yeast health and your sanitation, because when you're making something like a Coors or a Budweiser, there's not a lot of room to hide. Right. I mean,
0: remember, uh, Annie won the uh, Homebrewer of the Year award with uh, with a light lager, and uh, what it really takes when you're making a beer like that is attention to detail because there is no place to hide your flaws. Yep. Which my so wife always go. says to me too.
1: Yeah. You know, I never I never knew how many flaws I had until I started to talking to my wife. <laughs> uh, do you want me to send you a list? Oh, please. <laughs> I, I I need to be humbled, apparently.
0: All right. Keep your eyes up for a 48-page email. Last question today comes from Derek Scott via email, and it's for me. He says, Denny, can you give a high-level overview of your barley wine recipe formulation, process, and packaging? You've talked a few times about your once-a-year barley wine brew with your big cooler, and it's always piqued my interest. Also, I prefer English-style barley wine that uses lower IBU and OG. Do you have a preference? Uh, we'll start with that. Uh, first, my preference is very much to American-style barley wine. My introduction to the style was uh, Rogue's Old Crustacean, and that was kind of the, um, the, the model that, uh, that I used for my barley wine, which is called Old Stoner figure that um, I'll tell you that uh, old Stoner is a group process uh, it start, it began the very first year I started brewing with uh, me my good friend Kevin and another friend by the name of Ken uh, putting together an extract barley wine in Ken's kitchen that we intended to drink on uh, New Year's Eve 1999-2000. Uh, during a, a break from uh, the barley wine, while things were brewing and boiling away, uh, we were sitting there enjoying ourselves and trying to come up with a name for the barley wine. And, you know, barley wine is always old something or other. So we looked around at the three of us and uh, the name Old Stoner came up
1: because that's who we were. Uh so, <laughs> is self, self reflection, much
0: <laughs> not much. We uh we started calling ourselves the stoner brothers and uh, making old stoner barley wine once a year. Ken uh dropped out after a few years, and we have had uh, other uh stoner brothers uh sub in for a brew session now and then uh because uh none of us really drink much strong beer anymore. It's been a while since we brewed it. The version. I'd have to go look at the ribbon to see, but I won the the Oregon State Fair competition with a five-year-old version of it uh, one year. And I still remember from the comments on the score sheet, one of the judges said, oxidation has been very kind to this beer. I thought, wow, that's really a really cool thing to say. So anyway, like I said, our model is um, Rogue's Old Crustacean. The recipe formulation has been kind of a trial and error process. Uh, You know, I use my standard roadmap method where I visualize the beer in my head, kind of like taste it in my mind, and then start trying to put together ingredients to, uh, to come up with that. We knew that we wanted to get the IBU level up around 130, uh, and also with a really strong uh, flavor component and uh, and a pretty decent aroma also, due to various iterations and testing, it has come to contain a fairly heavy percentage of Munich malt. And if I was more on top of it, uh, I'd have that here for you. We'll post all this info on the website uh, so you can see the old stoner recipe, at least the uh, the the best iterations. Uh, we do play around with hops from year to year, although the grain bill stays fairly uh, consistent. Uh, I think that probably one of the better versions uh, had a real heavy dose of Chinook to it, and one of the versions I didn't like so well was made mainly with centennials, and they just didn't seem to uh, to have the bite to cut through all the malt. Process, uh, you know... Um, Once we got the big cooler, it became pretty easy. Back in the early days, uh, once we switched from extract to all grain, we would use a number of coolers, two or three at a time, to try and uh, mash enough grain. Um, I used mine with the braid in it. My friend Kevin has a cooler that he put a manifold in. I remember one year uh, as we were stirring, his manifold came off, and we had to uh, vorl off an enormous amount of wort before the grain finally set up enough to start filtering. Uh, but once it did, it worked great. We, we had great runoff and crystal clear wort. So uh, nothing I would recommend to people, but, uh, you know, we were saved there. These days, we use a 152-quart cooler. We are able to... Uh, Produce 10 gallons of a 1.100 beer uh, with the you know, mashing at a ratio of about a quart and a half per pound of grain uh, and get all of that uh, out of one mash. Basically, uh, we use around 65 pounds of grain for 10 gallons of it, 65 or 70 pounds of grain, and we end up using so much water that it basically becomes a no-sparge beer. Uh, the good thing of that is that we usually then end up with twelve to fifteen gallons of a second runnings beer that uh, with a gravity in the in the sixties. Uh, you know, because there's, there's so much left behind from the no sparge. So that's the basic process. Packaging, we put it in bottles. Uh, we don't do anything special. Uh, just normal bottling procedure. No fancy bottles. No corks. Uh, you know, it's just just that so so there's there is the old stoner story from the old stoner
1: himself now i feel like i need a doobie
0: <laughs> yeah me too
1: i'll be right back <laughs> jerk uh, jerk in oregon with illegal doobies
0: <laughs> yeah well you know what the heck okay go. so i guess it's time to uh move on to our tip of the week huh
1: yeah, but uh, I just really do want to reiterate, uh, make sure that if you have a question, uh, if you reach out to Danny and I in any of the places that you can find us, you know, on Facebook, on all the various forums, which pretty much means every brewing forum known to mankind, Denny has a presence on, uh, email, podcast, or questions at experimentalbrew.com. Uh, we will gladly do some research and see if we can't uh, come up with some answers. And if we don't know the answer, we'll gladly admit to that too by not answering your question.
0: <laughs> that's right if you send in a question and you don't get an answer then you know it's because you've stumped us
1: there you go no that's not true we have, we actually we do have a couple of long term questions that we're trying to do some research into so totally get us, get us your questions and it doesn't have to be a stumper it can be whatever it is that you want uh and uh hopefully we'll be able to get to it and don't forget a live q a show coming up at the homebrew con in baltimore in june
0: that's right. Uh, that's going to be really interesting. Okay, time to move on to our quick tip
1: of the week, which is... Denny Kahn is a yeast abuser. Denny, explain yourself.
0: It's true. It's true. I am a yeast abuser. Sometimes I'm a cereal yeast abuser. Uh, it's nothing I recommend you do but it's something that I have found that I can get away with. And here's my story. I uh, recently brewed up a batch of rye IPA on the Zymatic. I wanted to pitch some y yeast 1450 into it, so I went to the yeast fridge and opened it up, and what did I see there but a pack of 1450 with a date code of, oh, 10 or 11 months before. I thought to myself...
1: Denny, yeah, not everybody. Uh, not everybody lives with fourteen fifty in their heads. What is fourteen fifty?
0: Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was obvious. Uh, why use fourteen fifty as a yeast called uh, Denny's favorite fifty? That uh, is my favorite yeast to use for most beers. So anyway, I looked at that old smack pack sitting there forlorn and forgotten, and I thought to myself. You know, I could pull this out and make a starter with it, and then I would know that it was all set to go and be ready to brew with. But I don't want to do that. (laughs) I'm brewing tomorrow. I'm lazy. You know what? I'm going to pull this thing out. I'm going to smack it. If it swells, that will show me that the yeast is still viable in there to some extent, and I'm going to use it. I mean, what the heck? It's a a two-and-a-half-gallon batch of a 1064 beer, even... Even with old yeast, a smack pack ought to be okay for that, right? So that's exactly what I did. I smacked it. I uh, set it out on my kitchen counter. And sure enough, by the next day, that pack had swollen up to the point where it was fully expanded and nearly ready to burst. Brewed the beer, uh, stuck it in my chest fridge to cool down to pitching temp. When it got to 63, sanitized the pack, poured it in. And sealed up the keg that I was fermenting in and, uh, you know, crossed my fingers and went to wait. Checked it the next day, no fermentation. Checked it the day after that, 40 hours after brewing, no fermentation. I thought, okay, there's a couple, I have a couple options here. I had since gotten some new 1450. I could just pour in another smack pack. I could put in some dry yeast, or I can do nothing and see what happens. Being inquisitive as well as lazy, I went for option three. When I came back uh, the next morning, maybe 16 hours later, sure enough, there was a nice layer of croisin on the beer. Uh, I checked it later in the day, and it was just going crazy fermenting. I decided I would just leave it alone and see what happened. It took, normally in my chest freezer, and a fresh pitch of healthy yeast, I can get a beer pretty much fermented out in maybe three, four days. Four days, you know, being average. This batch took about, oh, about a week, ten days to ferment out uh, I checked it after about a week and the gravity was only down to 1030 and that worried me a bit. So I cranked my chest freezer up to 70 and uh, let it go. And a few days later, it was down to 1013, which is exactly where that beer is supposed to finish. Crashed it, did my usual method of uh, taking a gravity sample, putting it in a pet bottle and carbonating it so I could get a taste. And what do you know, the beer was fantastic. It was exactly what that rye IPA should be. Now, maybe it's, maybe it's just my time for being able to get away with abusing yeast because a few weeks before that, I had made a German pilsner and decided I would use a can of the Imperial Organic Harvest yeast on it. Unfortunately, that yeast was three or four months out of date. And when I opened the can, half of it shot all over my face and shirt. So I ended up pitching half a can of old lager yeast into five gallons of a a 1045 German Pils. And you know what? That beer fermented fine and turned out great also. Now, like I said, I don't advise anybody to do this kind of thing. But if you're willing to acknowledge the fact that you're risking the batch of beer that you just made and it might not work. And if, if you're inquisitive or in a hurry or stupid like me, you know, you might be able to get away with it too. And that's my story.
1: Well, I I think the important corollary to that is it's often said as a truism, which is that uh, the enemy of good is perfect. Right. So we talk a lot about like what ideal brewing practices are. We talk a lot about like, oh you know, this is the optimal way of doing it. But it turns out that sometimes, you know, really it just comes down to, hey, do you want beer or not? Sometimes in order to have beer, you have to make sure that you are practicing good enough techniques. And sometimes you can get away with, uh, well, less than perfect things in order to make a decent beer.
0: You know, and it all comes down to something that, Dan Listerman said many, many years ago that has stuck with me all through these years, and that is that malted barley wants to become beer. And I think that, uh, you know, those are words to live by. And remember, you can screw up, and you can still make damn good beer. So, there you go. I'm a yeast abuser. You probably don't want to be one, but if you have to be, then... uh, you, ha- you have a role model.
1: I wouldn't call you a role model. An example.
0: <laughs> okay. I guess maybe that makes more sense, huh?
1: There you go. All right. Onward and upward. Yes. And it's, and it's time for our, one of my favorite segments of this week and every week. Things other than beer. Because as it turns out, Danny and I aren't just all about the beer. We're just mostly about the beer. So here's where we talk about things that aren't about beer. Kind of. Maybe. Right. All right, Denny, you want to lead off? Sure. Um,
0: Back in our uh, Brew Year's Resolutions episode, you will remember that one of my resolutions was to get my chicken coop built and set up and get some chickens in it. Well, folks, it's about to happen. Due to my fantastic neighbors, Jerry and Connie, who run a company called Solid Design Woodworking, the chicken coop has been constructed in their shop. They'll be bringing it down on their truck uh, tomorrow morning, and we will be uh, putting the prefab pieces into place. Now, I really want to give a shout-out to these guys because they're amazing. You should go check out their website, Solid Design Woodworking. What they normally do is uh, make incredible handcrafted furniture and uh you know, picture frames, boxes, stuff like that. They'll go out into the woods, find a tree that's down, put it on the back of Jerry's nineteen forty-five flatbed truck, and uh, take it to uh, one of our local mills. We've got a couple uh, sawmills right on this road that I live on. Uh, run small ones, run by independent people. Get the wood milled and build this gorgeous stuff out of it. If any of you guys out there need bookcases, other stuff check out their website. This work is fantastic. And I guarantee you that this chicken coop is pretty much a work of art. Also, we'll have uh, a lot of pictures on the website of the chicken coop, uh, Jerry's cool truck uh, and the, uh, the process of putting it up. But uh, the chicken coop goes up tomorrow and uh, hopefully within the next, uh, couple weeks or so we'll have chickens populating it and in six months i'll be giving you frittata recipes that i made with my own eggs there
1: you go well i'm looking at his website and there's a cabinet on there that he features and a revolving bookcase on there that i both really kind of lust after those
0: revolving bookcases man are the bomb let me tell you they are gorgeous they are so cool
1: yeah now i'm kind of (laughs) jealous all right my turn okay your turn my all right. And you know what? You got to talk about bookcases. I'm going to talk about two things. Uh, one of which, I know this segment is something other than beer, but this is kind of beer related, although it's really, it's malt liquor related. And that is that this week, uh, Colt 45 announced the return of Billy D. Williams as their spokesperson. That's right. I can't, I can't tell
0: you how excited I am about that.
1: Uh, and there's a reason I can't tell you. Yeah. I, look, I'm, I, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm. The Colt Forty Five Malt Liquor is terrible. I hate it. But there's something incredibly iconic and uh, retro nostalgic, warming of my heart to see Billy D Williams back pitching malt liquor. It just cracks me up. Uh, and we'll put a link to the YouTube video for the first one of those ads that they released uh, this week, because really, how can you not actually feel like sort of a warmth about Billy D Williams? It's Billy D. Uh, and the other one uh, that that I wanted to share was this week, uh, as we're recording, the country of Sweden has a phone number. This is too cool. Have,
0: this is just yeah, too cool. Yeah.
1: The whole country of Sweden has a phone number. And what I mean by that is the country is advertising a phone number, four six seven seven one seven nine three 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 six 793 that you can call and talk to a random Swede at any time of the day. <laughs> a, yes,
0: yes,
1: yeah, fine, Swedish chef. Um, but no, like seriously, they call and ta-da, get hooked up with a random Swede to talk to and ask them questions about their country. It's a, it's an effort of their, uh, it's called the Swedish number project. And it's an effort of the tourist association for uh, Sweden. And basically they're like, Hey, come ask us questions about Sweden. See if you like us. And I just love it. All right. it, it uh, it's an amazing uh,
0: idea. And it would, it would never work in this country.
1: No, well, and, and they said that the most, most of their calls right now uh, since the launching uh, have been coming from uh, Turkey and the U.S. And uh, since it launched uh, on Wednesday, we're recording this on Friday. So two days after this launch, they've received over 10,000 calls uh, that they connected to random Swedes. And it's not just like, you know, random people. It's random people who have volunteered. But, you know, uh, NPR did a, uh, did a call and they got connected with a 19-year-old teacher uh, uh, out in Gotland. And somebody else called and they got connected with an AP award winning journalist who lives in Sweden. So, wow. Maybe maybe we can try cool. it and see if
0: we can get somebody to talk about beer.
1: Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So tell us what you think about Swedish beer. <laughs> but no, cool. seriously. I love I love the fact that Sweden has a phone number.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. Okay, it's time for the question of the week, and this week it is, what do you think about things getting stale on us? Uh, what do you, How do you think the malt staling uh, experiment will go? Have you had any experience with stale malt uh, that you know actually happened? What about that interview with Annie? Don't forget, if you have any suggestions for people you'd like us to talk to, topics you'd like us to talk about, just drop us a line. At uh, Denny or Drew at experimentalbrew.com.
1: All right. And now the recap. We've been talking long and hard, but do you remember everything that, that we talked about? I don't. So this is why I tell you. All right. We started off with a thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon. We went and went through our feedback, uh, the feedback that we got about the hop experiment, feedback that we got about uh, my weight loss segment. Uh, feedback about, well, you know, everything and why results are strange and science is strange and stupid sometimes. Then we were in the pub and we talked about the Governing Committee election and how Fred Bonjour is a big winner. Uh, Then we talked about the Homebrew Con, our plans for it, and how we're going to do a live Q&A show. So come out and see us. Uh, We highly suggest if you've never been to uh, the Homebrew Con or NHC, if you're an old fart, uh, you should totally go while it's in Baltimore because It's a fun time. It's literally three days when you can be as obsessively nerdy about homebrewing as you ever possibly would want to be and not feel embarrassed about it. We talked about Danny's pet peeve and rant as he yelled at the moon about people misusing the word juicy. Then we talked about Black Acre Brewing Company in Indianapolis and their awesome response to a sexist pig who uh, harassed their waitresses. So that was awesome. We talked about what it's like to do canning of your homebrew and how Denny does it with his company and how uh, we did it down in Southern California and why you should try to see if your local canner will help you. Then of course we talked about our experiment. Are we going to get stale and is there going to be an impact? We talked with Annie Johnson, you know, big uh, baseball fan, Oakland athletics, uh, big time brewer, lover of all things, uh loggery and apparently airplanes as well. And then We came in, we answered your questions, we think, maybe, including probably our favorite question of the week. Uh, We talked about how Denny is a bad, bad person with a restraining order given to him by yeast. Uh, We talked about Denny's chicken coop. We talked about Billy D. Williams and his return. And we also talked about why Sweden is awesome because they got a phone number. So there you go. We actually talked about a lot this week. We hope that you enjoyed it. Come back and listen to us again. Yeah, thanks a lot for joining us
0: here on the Experimental Brewing Podcast. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We're at Experimental Brew on Facebook, on Instagram, or whatever we can come up with. Uh, If you want to ask us questions or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or rant and rave, email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get in touch with each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. So we'll see you on the next episode. Until then, remember to brew experimentally.
1: Or brew wacky.